My name is Jeff McDonald. I'm an associate minister here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. We'd like to welcome those of you who might be visiting with us here tonight. And thank you for coming to our uh, event this evening, Conversations That Matter. Uh, Our topic tonight is homosexuality and the Bible. And in this ongoing series of conversations, our hope is that we would have profitable dialogue about topics, topics that can oftentimes be divisive, topics that are oftentimes controversial in the public arena. We don't believe, we do not believe that it's profitable uh, to simply dismiss differences of opinion, but rather to talk about such differences in an attempt to listen to one another, to understand one another, and even to be willing to be challenged. Uh, In an age of sound bites, it can be easy to assume that we completely understand the position of those that we disagree with. And so I hope that uh, with our time tonight of extended conversation, I do hope that it's profitable for us all. Now, our format this evening is very simple. Uh, We will have a brief presentation by Dr. Butterfield and a time for question and answers afterwards. Uh, We would ask that you use the microphones that are provided. There's two on either side and one in the back for those of you who don't want to venture all the way up here. Uh, Those microphones are available and would ask that you would use those not only so that folks around can hear the question, but for recording purposes so those questions can be uh, recorded as well. Uh, Dr. Butterfield has been traveling throughout the day today um, in order to be here with us. She has a very heavy speaking schedule over the next few days in the Tampa area. And so after our Q&A time, she will need to leave immediately to head back to Tampa. She's far too gracious and kind to tell you that herself. So I don't mind insisting that you use the Q&A time to ask any questions that might arise uh, rather than coming up and speaking to her afterwards. Uh, I know... Uh, that some of you may disagree with this if you are um, visiting here with us, but we believe that God has revealed himself to us in the pages of his holy word. We believe that scripture, the Bible, is sufficient to tell us how we can be made right with this God whom we have offended. And I think what you'll find from listening to Dr. Butterfield tonight is that she has that same conviction But it's not the way that our society thinks of that conviction. It's not a dogmatic belief that leads to our modern notion of hateful intolerance. But it's a commitment to God's authority over all of life because of his great love to her. And Dr. Butterfield is here very simply because she loves the Lord Jesus. And she loves to share about his amazing grace, which has very much intruded itself into her life. And her genuine desire is to give glory to God, and I think that you'll find that to be true, both in the content of what she says and the demeanor with which she says it. And so it's my great privilege to introduce to you Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, a former professor of English at Syracuse University and Geneva College. She's currently a full-time mother, a pastor's wife, and author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into the Christian faith. Uh, a book that we will have available for purchase in our fellowship hall uh, following our time. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Butterfield. Thank you. Thank you. Is my microphone on? Can you hear me? I didn't know I was supposed to talk briefly. I have that, that problem. You can take the I don't know, professor out of the classroom, but you can't take the class. Anyway, I'll try. 
<laughs> what? How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like a 20-car pile-up on the highway or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little bit of both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle does not work for me. I didn't read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes examine my life against the tenets of the Bible the way one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. Neither did I feel like the victim of an emotional earthquake and collapse gracefully into the arms of my Savior like a holy and sanctified Scarlet O'Hara, having been claimed by Christ's irresistible grace. Heretical as it might seem, Christ and Christianity seemed eminently resistible. My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my life, my normal life, In the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions sat quietly in the crevices of my mind until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had a pastor named Ken Smith not shared the gospel with me for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way. Those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might never have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. I had a normal childhood, whatever that means. I was raised in the Catholic faith, and I attended predominantly liberal Catholic schools. My liberal Catholic all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I use today. I learned there to read deeply and well, to diagram a sentence before I tried to interpret it, and to look out for the unloved and draw them in. I had a heterosexual adolescence. In college, I met my first boyfriend, and it was a heady experience. At the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself into my intense friendships with women. I didn't make much of this at first. From the age of 22 until 28, I continued to date men and at the same time feel a sense of longing and connection that toppled over the edges for my women friends. The repetitious sensibility rooted and grew. I simply preferred the company of women. In my late 20s, enhanced by feminist philosophy and LGBT political advocacy, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. The shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity and my love for my LGBT community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. Life finally came together for me and made sense. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM had long since removed homosexuality from its list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, by the time I had graduated from Ohio State with my PhD in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. 
we moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department of Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism felt like a cleaner and even more moral choice. Always preferring symmetry to asymmetry, I believed I had found my real self. What happened to my Catholic training? I believed now that it was hogwash, hocus-pocus, and hooey. The name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers, then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil with anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. As a 19th century scholar, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality. My life at this time was happy, meaningful, and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. And it was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my gay and lesbian community. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. To do this, I began reading the Bible while looking for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah? Absurd! At this time, the Promise Keepers came to town and parked their little circus at the university. I was on a war against stupid, and so I wrote an article, and it was published in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. One letter that I received defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible, his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of a literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I thought that was insane. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped for good or for ill by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to the letter, so I threw it away. And later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. If I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track, and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, 
Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was reserved for Stephen King novels. Stephen King was a big donor to the English department at Syracuse, so whenever we could, we were supposed to tuck in a novel. So I've actually read most of them. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians who mocked me at Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It engaged. So when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife Floyd and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things, And Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me on that first night. Number one, they did not share the gospel with me. And number two, they did not invite me to church. And because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, I knew that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship it was safe to close my hand in his. I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly, reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. I read the way a glutton devours. Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and a meaning that startled me. Some of my well-worn paradigms no longer stuck. I had to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and inherently true and trustworthy. And this led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims just to check the math of the meaning here. And the logic claims go like this. Number one, if this was a book written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, then its admonitions about sin were not what I've been calling it applied cultural phobia. Um, Why? Well, because God's goodness, unrestrained by time, anticipates and guards against the ill treatment of all people. Number two, if God is the creator of all things and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then maybe the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and culture, not the other way around. Even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can depend only on that which is higher than itself. Who is higher than God? I wondered. At a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. I felt exposed. I felt like I was going to throw up. I collapsed in the chair and I said, but what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? 
What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair across from mine. She looked as bad as I did, and she said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that the, that the Lord would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. And the next day when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jay's books. She was giving them to me. In Calvin's Institutes, in the margins of the exposition of the Book of Romans, in Jay's handwriting was a warning. Watch Romans 1. This is where I will fall. I opened my Bible and I flipped to Romans 1, verses 21 to 27, and this is what it said. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. I found the verb clauses here to be particularly arresting. Did not honor God, did not give thanks engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. God gives us over to our lusts, and when we look at the world through our lusts, we dishonor our bodies, and we worship the world. This verse seemed to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. If I were Eve, I would have done the same thing. And at the same time, Eve's and Adam's seemingly innocent sin served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. The two verses, one in Genesis and one in, one in Romans, stood out as bookends of my life. Not just my life, that's the rub. Genesis 3 and Romans 1 stood out as the table of contents of what ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting homosexuality as the worst and most extreme example of the sin of failing to give God glory for creating us. Here is where the passage finds its crescendo. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Homosexuality, then, is not the end point of the problem, not for God or for the world, but it is presented here as one step in the journey. Homosexuality seemed then consequential, not causal. 
according to the Bible itself, homosexuality then was not the root of all sin, not even the root of my sin. This stopped me in my tracks, and somehow it was easier to hate the Bible when it squared off against me. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different and more menacing kind. So I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But Ken encouraged me to keep keep reading. At this point, he was my friend, and I trusted him. And so I did. As I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace. I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that is, that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity, and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me embrace these things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text meaning found its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without the reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How could this one book lay claim to a birthright and progeny different from all the others? That this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me, and my hermeneutical bag of tricks had no system of containment for this. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the Word made flesh, and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination. The whole Bible, even the places that took my life captive. And after years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then, one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the bed I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later, I sat in the pew of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I say this not to be lurid, but to remind us that we simply never know the treacherous journey that some people take to arrive in the pew that we share Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Conspicuous of my appearance, I reminded myself that I came there to meet God, not fit in. The first sermon that I heard Ken preach was intended for children. Whoo, I thought, this is just my speed. Ken started to talk about the narrow gate and the wide gate, and he made a big deal about some kind of prop for the kids that it was in his pocket. I didn't get that part. I didn't get much of it. My mind kept wandering to last year's gay pride march, wide as it was with people just like me. And that made me wonder... Why does my mind keep traveling to the wide path? I kept going back to church to hear more sermons. I had made friendships at this point with people in the church, and I appreciated the way that throughout the week they talked about the sermon or the Word of God, how the Word of God, quote-unquote, dwelt in them, and how they used it to reference the details of their days. 
Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and I thought it had the most bewildering cast of characters and problems. These unsuspecting folks separated unto the Gospel, seeds choked by the world, and then, this is my all-time favorite, this poor kid, you know, feeding thousands with some poor and nameless kids bread and fish. I mean, the guy doesn't even get a name. And then Jesus' cutting question to impetuous Peter, do you still lack understanding? One Lord's Day, Ken stopped there. He turned his steel-blue eyes on the congregation, held us in a long pause before he turned this question on us. Congregation, he asked, did Christ ever say this to you? This startled me. This was my question. This was the question for me. Do I still lack understanding? Who is speaking here? The man behind the pulpit or the God-man behind the foundation and redemption of his people? There was something about the hermeneutic of preaching that really bothered me. And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not because we were gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. It was our hearts first. Our bodies followed. I got it. I heard it, finally. And I counted the costs, and I did not like the math. And this was my crucible, and it is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false, then I am simply the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I am a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. And I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell with Adam and his first sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and matching of wits. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high. They always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that God would make me, of all people, a godly woman. I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed that God would give me the faith 
to repent of my sin at its root. What is the root of my sin, I wondered. I did not then, and I do not now, think that homosexuality is the root of the sin, homosexuality. How does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel like sin at all, but rather normal, not bothering another soul kind of life? How would I come to this place? What is the root of the sin of sexual identity? I was a jumble of emotions, but I prayed that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view. And the next morning when I woke up and I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian, or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in body and heart. That was, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity? The Bible makes it clear that the real and the true have a troubled relationship on this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, and with dreams and hopes and plans. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling always echo an attribute of God. Obedience constrains it always mirrors suffering, as every selection, every selection implies a sacrifice. What is bigger, my lesbian identity and the feminist and postmodern worldviews that fuel it, or God's authority over me and his sovereignty over the world? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day... I came to Jesus. No altar calls in a Reformed Presbyterian church, so no fanfare manipulation. The, co- the guy whose you know, who's back of his head I stared at for two years probably had no idea what was going on in the pew behind him. We were singing from Psalm 119, line 56. This is mine because forever all thy precepts I preserve. After I sang these words, I checked them in the Bible just to see them again. The Bible used a helping verb and noted the verse like this. This has become mine. And something about that helping verb made something shift in me. Two weight-bearing walls collapsed in my mind. The first wall came crashing down because I had just sung condemnation unto myself, and I knew it. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it. But I had been reading and rereading this book, and the use of that helping verb has and has become troubled me. Two years of laborious reading embodies the helping verb has. It shows process, journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not, quote-unquote, in Christ, and therefore could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. And here was the shattering of the second wall. I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. 
I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention, and I came to Jesus alone, open-handed, naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. It was a crushing revelation. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. In this war of worldviews, Ken and Floy were there. The friends in the church who had been praying for me for years, they were there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I lost everything but the dog. And he was a good dog, too. <laughs> and if he could talk, he could tell you a lot, because he went, <laughs> he went through it all. Of course, there is only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just some conversion exercise. It is the posture of the Christian, much like warrior one, tree, or full lotus is the posture of a yogi. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it proves the obvious that God was right all along. I speak today about matters that happened over a decade ago. God has taken me on a long journey, and like most pilgrimages, mine seems to engender many more questions than answers. But in the time that we have left, I, I want to take up one question about sexuality in the Christian faith that I am repeatedly asked. Why did I have to give up my girlfriend for Christ? Why couldn't I have both? After all, can't someone believe in Jesus and be gay? Let's unpack this. Number one, can someone struggle with homoerotic feelings, same-sex attraction, call it what you want? Can people struggle with a desire pattern and still be a faithful believer in Christ's atoning work? Can people struggle? Well, yes. I think probably most of us struggle with all kinds of things every day. Yes, you can struggle. Jesus indeed was tempted in all things, and, and so too are we. But number two, can someone unrepentingly embrace and deny as sin homoerotic lust, allowing it to flourish and root as a practice and an identity, and then add Jesus to the identity and call it a Christian faith. No. No. 
Why no? Why isn't this no an example of homophobia in its rejection of the idea that the individual sets the terms of his or her own sexuality? What about people whose gender identity is clearly liminal or people who believe and, and truly believe that they were born that way? They were born with a deep and abiding and unrelenting sense of gay identity and selfhood. What about them? Because the Bible is sufficient for how we understand sexuality and how we mortify or kill sin at the root, we do not need to add anything to it when seeking help. It is simple and difficult all at the same time. We are all born this way, every single one of us, although what this references may be different in each case. But we are all in the same boat. It's called original sin. Millions of ways to be broken and one way to be made whole. Salvation begins with God's sovereign initiation, not with my intellectual assent to a moral framework about normative sexuality or a set of ideas or a desire to get rich or a longing to have a happy life. It is a dangerous lie to say that Christians are people who merely believe in Jesus. Even the demons believed in Jesus, and it sent them straight to hell. Of course, lies are called half-truths for a reason. Dangerous lies often contain a large dollop of truth. And the idea that a Christian is merely someone who believes in Jesus is the whopper deception of this present age. After God's sovereign invitation, after the Holy Spirit removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, we fall on our faces as we hear the still, small voice of God. We relinquish our lives to him, all of our lives, every bit of it, as his sovereign grace commands this. We keep nothing back. This includes our sexuality. We were born this way. We were all born this way. And that is what it means to have Adam as our representative head, to have fallen with Adam within his first sin, and to be born with original sin. How do we hear God? Is it an audible voice? No. God speaks to us through the language of the Bible. The Bible is key. We train our ears to hear the Lord by drinking deeply of his holy word, his word, his direct word, not the themes of Christianity that we create. Um, Nothing that we create will have the power to save, discern, sanctify. Not one creation of ours will come close to the sharp edges and the sanctifying blood of our Savior. We commit our lives to the Jesus of the Bible, the Word made flesh, who came to fulfill the whole law of God, every jot and tittle. We do not use our personal experience to verify the validity of God's commands. The Christian faith is simply not a pragmatist's paradigm. We die to the old man or woman and become alive in Christ, or we do not yet know him. He is the potter, and we are the clay. In sanctification, God grows us in a likeness of Jesus. By drinking deeply of his means of grace, Bible reading, psalm singing, worship, taking the sacraments, church membership, fellowship with other believers, 
perseverance of the saints. And in so doing, we take our rightful place as sons and daughters of the covenant. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. You know, I'll tell you, one of the scariest things anybody could have asked me when I was a new believer is, how do you feel? Do you still feel like a lesbian? How do you feel? That's the inviting Peter to take his eyes off of Jesus and look in the water question. When Jesus died and rose again, he gave sin a mortal blow. Thomas Brooks compares our sin to a tree that has been cut at the root. The tree may pop a few leaves, but its inevitable fate is death. And so, too, we see our sin. It is no longer something that comes at us with full potency. It is a lion with its jaws wired shut. Sin may sucker punch us, but never slay us, because Christ's death gave sin its final blow. We grow in sanctification in two directions. Because it doesn't always look pretty, does it? First, and maybe most importantly, we grow in humility about the power of sin to overwhelm us. And secondly, we grow in our ability to conquer sin. And both count as growth in grace, humility and victory. And that is how Christ heals us from the consequence of our sin, whatever that sin may be, by giving us victory over it through humility or change, by never divorcing us, even when we fall and we are weak, and by giving us himself as an example. Christ did not die all at once upon the cross, so also the slaying of sin is gradual in the souls of saints, says Thomas Brooks. Sexual sin has many tendrils, but by Christ's stripes we are healed. He pours the supernatural balm of Christian victory into the grooves of our sin patterns, our body memories, until the holes are filled with his grace and until attacks and seductions no longer stop us in our tracks. And that is what it means to be a new creature in Christ. God separates us unto the gospel to reveal his son in us. And recognizing that God gave us our will, we put our will on his altar We use God's vocabulary and God's dictionary. We call sin, sin, no matter what our personal feelings or experiences on the subject. And we call grace, grace, and we drink deeply from its well. We are God's image bearers, and we encourage other image bearers to spend more time looking at the original than at its reflection. We do not domesticate sin by calling it something else. Indeed, this is a persistent question for our time, is it not? Can a person retain an unrepentingly gay personal identity and claim Christ's headship, lordship, and salvation? Indeed, that is what the Raleigh-based advocacy group Gay Christian Network purports. Other well-known Christians are calling themselves gay Christians as well. Who are we to argue with the use of a descriptive adjective like gay to modify nouns like Christian? I mean, that's somebody's personal experience, right? What right do we have? You know, I'm an English professor by training, and I can't help but to notice these things, but I've been bothered by these use of descriptive adjectives, and I finally went back and I did a little research into, you know, what's the whole purpose of an adjective, right? What does it do? And it was interesting to me to discover 
that the linguistic purpose of a descriptive adjective is to, quote, indicate the quality of the noun or the pronoun and to limit it. Is that what we really want to say about your Christian life? It's a small thing. I'm going to give you the limit, God, to what it is. Change me everywhere you want, but not there, because it's fixed. Is that really what we want to say? I don't think so. These are not small matters. What is in a word, you might ask? Everything. Jesus is the word made flesh. All power is in the word. Christ will have all of us, not part of us. We may struggle with all manner of sin and temptation in this world, but nowhere in the Bible is there a recorded prayer where anyone gets to order up his own personal program for sanctification. If we blame God for our lust and then declare that we can only be a good use to him if he gives us the life that we order up in prayer, we are being petulant children engaging in a satanic form of self-pity. And I know this because I'm speaking for myself here. Sadly, we often call this prayer, but self-pity is truly the furthest thing that there is from prayer. So what then is the Christian response to our family and friends in the lesbian and gay community? Let's turn to Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Recently, someone said this to me, Rosaria, give up this ministry. It is dangerous and unnecessary, and those people are going straight to hell anyway. But I believe that God's elect people are in the gay and lesbian community, too. And that changes everything. Ezekiel 37.3 puts it, puts this point in terms of a question. Son of man, can these bones live? What about your bones or my bones? Were they somehow less dead? Do we remember the humbling moment when we first knocked at God's door, standing there, the crucified thief? Because if you're in Christ, that's who I am. That's who you are. And to this, you might say, Rosaria, if God's elect people are in the gay and lesbian community, why aren't they rushing into our churches saying, how can we be saved? Why instead do we, why instead do we see a whole lot of pushback? And I know about that pushback. Why do we see whole branches of the Christian faith rejecting orthodoxy for revisionism, domesticating the sin of homosexuality, and declaring a false peace? Dear Christian, Is it possible that we are, perhaps, in no small part to blame? Homosexuality is a sin, but so is homophobia. What is homophobia? 
Well, it's the unrestrained fear of gay and lesbian people and the wholesale writing off of their souls. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, common verse. Many of you probably have it memorized. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now think about this. What if the way of escape for our brothers and sisters in the lesbian and gay community is your house or mine? Your church or mine? Are we part of the problem or the solution? Are are our doors locked? Do we have a by invitation only idea about Christian fellowship? Are we good company for the suffering? Do we secretly harbor the heresy that people's well-defined identities overpower God's imprint of his soul upon us? Are we willing to speak the truth in love across the long haul of unconditional friendship? Do we not want to rock the boat with gospel truth? Or do we only want to rock the boat, reducing people who do not yet know Christ to stereotypes, to mock and despise, rendering people as ghost stories? Are we so afraid of breaking our hearts on the rock of Christ as we shake the gates of heaven in prayer that we would simply rather despise others? God's journey for me has been rigorous, and my former life, while under the blood of Christ, still lurks in the edges of my heart. God changed my heart's desires, but memories, while dulling, have not disappeared. I pray for the names from my past that intrude into my present at unpredictable times, my early morning yoga class, Saxon math lessons, church. God saved me, but he did not lobotomize me. But bigger than this, I have not forgotten the blood that Jesus surrendered for this life, this very one, where I now live in the shelter of a covenant family, where one calls me wife and many call me mother, this precious, never-imagined jewel of a life in Christ Jesus, my Lord and my Savior, a life whose edges only pale because in Christ so much more awaits me and so much more is promised. Thank you. That was not brief, was it? (laughs) So sorry. Any questions at all, um, please just feel... uh, just let me know what they are. Don't hold back. Um, I'm not afraid of, of telling you that I won't answer it if it's too personal. See, I'm not part of the Facebook generation. I'll just tell you. I don't have a Facebook page. So private is private and public is public. But if you don't know what my private is and what my public is, I'll be happy to tell you. So don't worry about that. Um, so just ask, ask anything at all. Thank you for coming to speak to us, Dr. Butterfield. I 
um, just graduated from a literature program in August, and so I'm that student who had more questions to ask than you have the time or the desire really to answer. That's right. Um, We're cutting from the same cloth, yes. Um, But my first question is, um, when engaging something like literature and something like the arts that is so dominated by feminist theory and there's almost no other view that is accepted, what is the best way to confront that theory while also understanding there's a line in which we can say that I should not be taking a specific thing in and how would one, especially one who is a new college student, address a professor and perhaps say something like, I should not, as a Christian young person, be reading something and putting something in my thoughts because it's not going to be able to keep me yeah. pure. Yeah. Um, and then my next question, because I had a whole list of them. <laughs> I will forget your first question if I don't get to answer it. But okay, no, go I for will it. Not. I will not, because that's dear to my heart. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, These people will remind me. <laughs> I'm very... College turned me very much into hierarchist. I very much appreciate the hierarchies which God has bestowed upon humankind. I, right. I love the gender roles that God has given us, and I think there's great complementarism with them. And yet I still hear many people, even within the Christian community, who will defend perhaps some of the good things that have come from feminism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, whether it be the right for women to vote, what have you, which are good things. Mm -hmm. But after engaging the feminism and hearing things, you know, from my American modernist classes, um, the willingness to defend awful, debaucherous things, abuses to women, abuses to children, in the view of being... Uh, Tony Morrison is my favorite example. Just yeah, yeah. sick things. I, I think I get the gist. Let me yeah. take, let me take a stab at this. You you are a beleaguered soldier after four years of a of of, of a lit major. I I can hear that. Couple of things. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, Edward Veith, um, and Riken R Y K E N have all done amazing things in the field of literature and hermeneutics as Christian scholars. And so what you always want to do as a student is you want to find a teacher and model, right? You don't, I'm a student, I don't invent, I've I've done very little original work in my life. Uh, And the hardest thing a student can do, the most important thing a student can do, the most important thing a graduate student can do is pick a dissertation director. The most important thing a student can do is choose, uh, choose that person who will disciple you. So I would just suggest that you look to the great wealth of material that those three excellent Christian scholars have done, and you find a niche in there. Um, and, and I, you know, the other issue is, you know, I, I don't think you can ever give a good answer to a bad question. So I think Christians would do well to not answer questions that are not good questions. And so um, is God's common grace available to all? Absolutely. Have good things come to us through the work of unbelievers? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so true. It's just true. But it's not the point. So you need to acknowledge what is true. And if they still, you know, allow you to speak, which isn't always the case, right? But if they, you know, if they don't kick you, if they don't take the microphone away, you get to the truth. But you don't do anything without praying 
and praying and praying and praying for name for people. So that would be my, my advice to you. I did recently write an article on how to engage gay rights activists on campus. So I don't know if that would be helpful, but there's a couple of... I'm not really a do's and don'ts kind of thinker, but I was persuaded to write a do's and don'ts article for the, uh, for the fall semester. So that's out there if that would be helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Next question. Hey, I also, I just graduated from college too, and, but the school I went to was a Christian school, so I still encountered a bunch of the people who were, you oh, know, sure. saying get, you can be a gay and Christian. Right. Um, and one of the questions I was just particularly interested in was, um, in one of my classes there is a woman who would always speak about how she just hated how pastors preached sermons on homosexuality. Right. And I just wanted to hear how you would respond to that and what your opinion on yeah, that is. Yeah, You know, I've never heard a sermon on homosexuality. I'm married to a pastor, and I've been faithfully in the church for, you know, over a decade. And I've never heard a whole sermon on homosexuality, and I think that would be kind of strange. I, I don't know. I mean, I just think that would be sort of odd. Um, it's just not in my, in my, in my world um, there's, it seems to me that sermons that I have heard have always um, offered grace um, after an acknowledgement of sin, that when, when we deal differently with God, God deals differently with us. I think that's the message I get. I also read extensively in, in, in the Puritans, and so I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of, and I, I kind of go right to the hardcore, and I don't, I just haven't seen it. So I think what's really helpful for me, anytime anybody is on a, is on a um, crusade against something, you know, I'm a reader, I would say, Show me that sermon and let's look at it, right? I mean, I will, I will read anything with you. So what I like to do is slow down the attack. But I'm sure if I saw a sermon that all it was was a diatribe against homosexuality, and especially if it was, you know, there's, there's two swirling forms of sin that are powerfully evident in in. in at least my world these days. Um, one is the sin of pride that organizes the gay rights movement. And the other is the sin of pride that organizes pharisaical approaches to how everybody else's sin is the biggest problem in the world. All right, One comes at me with balloons and flyers and flags and sometimes tries to prevent me speaking, and the other just drives me crazy in an even more offensive way in some ways. Maybe I just need to be more sanctified, but I I don't know. So I I don't know. So I'd I'd go ahead and read the sermon with her, and you know what? You, You might find yourself saying, Sister, this is a terrible sermon. Why don't you come to church with me and meet a real pastor? My question has to do in engaging people, engaging postmodernists, because language has become the battleground. And I'm, yeah. you know, you've spoken, you know, kind of peripherally to the, to you know, within your, your talking on homosexuality, and how how 
powerful and yet subtle a tool redefinition of language is yes, in terms right. of the way postmodernists talk. Truth claims right. versus truth. Right. I guess it's a, I have kind of a two-part question is how, how do you really start parsing all that and taking it apart and getting to, getting to the root of what they're saying right. to right. try and, and get to the root of the, of the sin they're purporting? Sure. And, and then how, you know, the, the word homophobia is, right. is just as loaded because, yes, there are homophobes who just say all homosexuals are going to hell, and then there are those of us who are Bible-believing Christians who recognize it as sin and want to deal right. with people in love that way. How do, you, right. how do you deal with those language issues yeah, yeah. with the that's postmodern a, world? That's a great question because you can lose somebody just by the term you use um, in... in um, when I'm speaking on a secular college campus, I, I want to be really careful. I share what I shared with you is pretty much what I share on secular college campuses. Also, only I don't usually get an applause. You might put a surprise. Um, but but you know what? I'm a little more careful. I do not use homosexual. I might use gay and lesbian more frequently. I want to be careful. So you're right. Language issues are very very important. And I think the two things that I would recommend: one is find a find a model. Um, you know, right now, Tim Keller is doing some amazing things in Manhattan, right? That church has found a way, Redeemer has found a way to interface with uh, an intellectual postmodern culture. And I think it, it's, you know, I, again, I am not original. I am anti-original. So I like to find a model. But, you know, the other thing that you want to do is I don't engage postmodernists. You know, I don't, I don't have a ministry to gays and lesbians. I talk to people, and those people have a name. And I am um, committed to letting people tell me their story. Because I can, I, I, Jesus gives me the strength and the capacity and the courage to meet people right where they are. They don't need to clean it up. They don't need to minimize it. But I don't know if I'm meeting you right where you are unless I listen more than I speak. And so I think what's really important is that we listen without commentary, that we develop relationships with people that are based in listening. And I know I talk to a lot of Christians who say, but Rosaria, I don't want to deceive people. I don't want them to think by my silence that I approve. Where do I draw the line? And, you know, I think it's, I, I, again, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because, you know, surely in your church life, in our church life, surely we do not say everything that comes to mind when people talk to us, right? I mean, don't try that tomorrow. Right? <laughs> that will not go over well. And so I think to a certain degree, being a good listener and just allowing people to know, allowing others to tell you right where they are is very, very important. Um, and for that reason, when I'm talking with transgendered people, I will use whatever pronoun you tell me. I, 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 and you know what? I'm not going to die on that hill. And I've had Christians condemn me for it, and that's fine, because while you're busy doing that, I'm busy doing something else. So um, I, I, I am willing to take people right on their own terms, because, you know, it's Jesus who changes people. Right. I cannot change anyone. 
See, my real people are four feet tall. I'm a homeschool mom. I can't even change them. So I surely can't change, you know, a, you know, a fellow adult. But Jesus can. Do you have a question? Thank you so much for being here. I just wanted us to sing the doxology, just praising God for... <laughs> That's wonderful. I, you for, should always feel free to break out in song when I... <laughs> um, and, and I've... Uh, my heart has been because Christ died. It's mm-hmm. the blood of Christ. That's right. It's not the relationship. And in the park where I live, there's a gal that just carries herself... Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kept saying, I've got to be careful about having her in my home. But you convinced me otherwise, you know. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is, you know, and I, this is just the opportunity that I have for Je- right. with Jeanette. That's right. Um, whether she likes it or not, mm-hmm. I have little things around my house and, uh, and uh, reminders for me, of course. Right. Right. Um, but I, I just, um, and, and then there, I met a couple women whom I've, I, I kind of feel that they're, I don't know that they're in that relationship, but I, in their community in which they live, um, their company identifies for me. And I feel a little uncomfortable when they come around because I feel like I'm the odd one in the group, which I usually am anyway. But um, What are you laughing for? Um, but I see here, the, I wrote down unconditional friendship. Mm-hmm. So when they invite me over to play games, and mm-hmm. we have a great time, mm-hmm. um, and I do, I pray for them. I, mm-hmm. pray, I pray for Jeanette. I pray for mm-hmm. uh, other persons, and not as faithfully as I probably should, but I'm just grateful that you've been here. I, heard, I listened to uh, the program a couple weeks ago, and you talked about how you have people in your home. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you just don't... I mean, we've put up such a wall... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right. you've got people committing other things. Right. And um, right. so just thank you. And God bless you. And yippee. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I was off the hook. I didn't have to do Okay, thank you. Again, thank you very much for being here. I was just visiting the area and happened to hear this afternoon that you oh, were here. I've wonderful. been recommending your book for months now. And as I've recommended it, I'm finding that people are hearing a recommendation and using it in one or two of opposite ways. Okay. I think chapter one is the best treatise on evangelism in the 21st century that I've read. <laughs> And that's the way I'm using it and saying, okay. you know, really look at uh, what it means to reach people. Right. But I'm hearing people say, yeah, I'm going to buy a case of those and give them to my uh, gay and lesbian uh, people. And I just wonder if you could comment a little bit about what your audience is for that book yeah. and how you Thank hope you. that it will be used. Thank you. That's a great, great question. Um, well, my audience for the book originally was really just... Uh, my children. I wrote the book as a journal. I wrote it over a 10-year period. Uh, you know, I'm a homeschool mom, so it's not uh, it's not unusual for me to be, you know, writing at my computer and have some kids shoot me in the head with a water gun, right? Or, you know, to have a frog jump across my desk. Or so it's not. You know, I don't I don't work in. Um, you know, my, my my working conditions are something that uh, <laughs> I'm not unionized. You know, I just. <laughs> um, 
So it's, it has is, it is shocked me that more than 20 people read the book, really. I mean, I figured it would kind of go the way of a good church cookbook. It, hey, I like, I, like, I like Rosaria's minestrone. Look, she wrote a book, you know. But, so that has just been really surprising to me. But I did write it to a Christian audience. Um, and and I, I did. And I, I wrote it to a Christian audience because of a... Um, this growing sensibility that I was, in some ways, living a lie because as a Reformed pastor's wife, I, I looked pretty cleaned up. And over the years, people would, would confess things to me, and I thought, you know, I need to tell you the truth about the journey that God took me on because it is only by God's extravagant grace that I stand here. You know, if there was a bad choice to make, you know, you know, I have the PhD in bad choices, right? You know, I, I'm tenured in sin, okay? I mean, I, you know, but I look, I look, you know, kind of cleaned up and I couldn't. So I really wrote it to Christians to um, enter in, I, you know, my, my desire, if anybody read it, which I really didn't think anybody would, but if anybody did bother to read it, I thought what would be nice to come of it is to find a different way of talking about homosexuality in the gospel. And then larger than that, a different way of talking about uh, um, the Christian faith, in some ways rejecting the idea of it as a religion and moving to the gospel message. And I, I wanted to share that. I also wanted to share my love for reading the Bible and my belief that this um, verse-a-day Christianity is, is ridiculous. You know, and I'm sorry if you're a verse-a-day Christian, but I do not think, I think reading your horoscope gives you about the same, you know, oomph. I mean, the Bible was meant to be read as a library. There are 66 books and, and there are, you know, it represents every different genre of literature. You know, it's kind of funny to me. I was trained, I'm a you know, PhD in English, I'm trained to do one thing, right? I have one little widget. I can read a book, I can make sense of what it says, and I can assess its integrity. And God used that one little seemingly narrow academic you know, tick, and he used it in my salvation. So I wanted to share the vitality of the authority of the, of, of the scriptures. Um, I do not see, I mean, I, you know, I suppose, you know, I, I also have told this to Ken Smith. I told Ken Smith that if I knew that so many people would have been reading this book, I never would have published it. And he said, God knew how to work with your disobedience, okay? <laughs> He's very sharp. He's in his 80s, but he doesn't miss a trick. Um, so I didn't see it as a missional book at all. And, and when I hear that people are giving cases away, I just start twitching. You know, like, oh, no. Um, but, you know, it's, at this point, it is the Lord's business, how that book is used, but I am shocked when I hear that people use it in that way, (laughs) Um, because I think it is written to a Christian audience. Now, I hope, and I don't know if it's the case, because I'm I'm not a good judge of this, I hope I wrote it in a winsome enough way 
that an unbeliever could be listening into the conversation in a profitable manner. Um, but I think, you know, for me, the big challenge is that God changes people. But what does that change look like? See, I genuinely do not believe that the solution to the problem of homosexuality is heterosexuality. I, I, I just don't. I, I believe that the solution to the problem of any sin is Jesus. And I believe that if we were more focused on our life in Jesus, we would stop picking the lint out of our navels and putting it under the microscope and creating a lobbying group for it. You know, because dryer lint, I don't care what, what some frugal homeschool mom say you can do with it. it. It is garbage, and it needs to be put in the garbage. You all have read the same books I have, I can tell. Does that answer your question? And a few others along the way, like what to do with dryer lens, yes. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yes. Hi, uh, thank you again. I was just curious, what did the first conversation um, with Ken, I think it's his, Ken, yeah. uh, what did that look like when you went over to their house? And Oh, I talk about that in the book. Um, it, was, it was really interesting. I, well, you know, I was a peace and social justice activist, and I, I really, uh, and I still, you know, there are many things. I, someone said to me, Rosaria, you know, you just haven't really changed that much, <laughs> which I thought, I don't know, maybe that's not a compliment. But, you know, I, I care about the environment. I, I really, you know, try to turn the lights off. And anyway, one of the big deals for me was I did not have air conditioning, and, you know, I was concerned about how that all would play out in the ozone layer. And so I went, I went over to Ken and Floyd's house the first time, and it was just a beastly hot day in July. And I was so thrilled that they did not have air conditioning. So the first thing was I was just thrilled that, you know, it was just sticky and hot and the fans were on, just like my house. Um, and then Floyd had, I don't know why, but, you know, she, she's a sensitive praying woman, and she had made a vegetarian meal, and I preferred to eat a vegetarian, you know, I just believed before I read Genesis that the killing of animals was, you know, in my book it was a sin. So I was just delighted, you know, that it was a meal that I could eat. So, so it was a disarming night for me because I, I kept, you know, holding my breath just ready to be insulted. And that just didn't happen. That didn't happen. And, you know, some people have asked, well, you know, why didn't Ken, you know, invite you to church? Or why didn't he share the gospel? You know, it, he only had that moment. But, you know, Ken really believes that neighbors are there for life. See, we were neighbors. I'm not next-door neighbors. But his house was on my running route. It was less than a mile away. And when you live in Syracuse especially, you know, those snowstorms are no small things. Neighbors know each other. Neighbors know who has the snow uh, blower and who has the, you know, neighbors do that. And so I very much got the sense from Ken that regardless of where these conversations about faith went, as long as we were neighbors... You know, we were stuck with each other. 
Okay, first of all, I have a whole group here that's going, oh, no, she's up there. This is trouble. Oh, no, really? But, yes, oh, yeah. You but don't look like trouble You are hitting, me. oh, my goodness, you're hitting at home for me, and I know many others here. Okay, praise God. But, yes, um, but when you said one of the hardest questions you had when you first became a believer, I'm that totally hit it for me because I was not the one that I recently heard Several high school children speak about when I was one and a half, I became a Christian and da 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 da, and Christian home and all this kind of stuff. Well, that wasn't me. No. Yeah, right. Okay. I was. I said you. You know how you got a PhD? Did you say in bad in choices? Sin, right. Yeah. Well, then not, I got a master's really, in yes. bad choices <laughs> yeah. because that was me, and I was a later in life believer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and became a Christian later in life. But when you said, "How do you believe?" or "How did you feel when you first became through right. everything you went through?" Yeah. How did you? I mean, I know when. Here at our church, um, if you meet with our pastor and you ask him and you say, you know, how come things aren't going great? And, you know, I thought becoming a Christian was going to be, you know, this great and lovely thing. He's going to look at you like, oh, boy, keep coming, you know, keep coming every Sunday because there's nowhere that it says in the Bible that it just goes, yeah, this is so much fun and everything's going great, you know, and that you're just going to hit it. You're going to hit bottom, then you're going to go up. And it's just he's always taught me that. You know, right. you're going to have a walk of, yeah, oh, wow, this is grace. And, you know, but then mm-hmm. you're going to go down. But maybe how did you feel? I mean, I know how I felt, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I avoid those kinds of questions. <laughs> uh oh, sorry. Very See, that's nice. why Thank they went. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> that is a really hard question because for me, and, and maybe for you as well, conversion was, you know, it it wasn't simply rearranging, you know, the furniture in my world, you know, or even throwing out some of the furniture in my world, right? It was, it was a complete overhauling. It, it, um, you know, and and I think that's, that's important. You know, many, um, you know, the, the gospel message is that Jesus is the way, Right. And forgive me, I'm an English professor, so I have to tell you that that is is a linking verb and that that's really important, okay? See, I say, oh, look at all those little shiny things. You know, there's, um, it's really important. In any other religion, including the religion of a secular spirituality, every other religion points you to what the way is and what you need to do. But Jesus is the way, and you know, at the, you know, my, my life fell apart, right? You know, it's not like I had everybody saying, oh, Rosaria, that's so great, you've become a Christian. I can't write my dissertation with you now, because, you know, I mean, like, seriously, in my world, when I became a Christian, everybody in my world were, they were mangled by the train wreck, too. You know, a 20-car pileup doesn't just stay, you know, in its little bounded system, so it hurt a lot of people. My faith hurt a lot of people. And that is not a pleasant idea to me. But I'll tell you what was at the bottom of all of those feelings. A sense that I could now rest. And that was a really new idea. Because our Lord and our Savior made us, takes care of us, redeems us, prays for us. And when we are weak, he restores us. But before then, 
he allows us the safety to rest. The, uh, the movement to legalize homosexual marriage in states throughout our nation has brought about a variety of responses from churches and from Christians. And I've wondered from your perspective what you think are the most effective or faithful or appropriate ways that churches or Christians address something like that. Right, 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 right. You know, and it's, it's the great irony, right? In 96, when, um, when DOMA first came out, I was a lesbian in a committed relationship, and, you know, I was on the losing team, and now in 2013, when the Supreme Court renders its DOMA decision, you know, I'm married to a man, and I'm a conservative Christian, and I'm on the losing team, and, you know, I like to think of it as a spiritual gift, let me just say, that's just, that's the first thing you need to know. Some people have the gift of rebuke, others the gift of gullibility. I have the gift of, uh, you know, I have the gift of standing with the disempowered, which is not a bad place for Christians to be standing, by the way. Um, Not a bad place at all. Here's what I think. I think that ultimately, in a public sphere, Christians are called to be good neighbors. And good neighbors care very much for the well-being of the eternal soul of all people. Because people, all people, are created with one fixed orientation, and that is a soul that will last forever. And so it is, it is imperative that Christians not support um, laws, in my opinion, that will encourage other people to be separated from a holy God. Does that answer your question? No. See, I know. When they jump back no, up, no, they're like, no, no I way appreciate the answer, and I appreciate your perspective. I was wondering, given your perspective, uh, your thoughts on the proper responses of Christians and churches to the efforts themselves. You, it seems as if you you still feel frustration towards the approach that you saw in many Christians to homosexuality. And I wonder if that plays over also in something like the legal matter of uh, legalization of of homosexual marriage. The question was a little different. I'm going to try another answer, and then you can just pop back up again. It's good exercise. I have to stand up here the whole time. The the fact that you get to pop up a few times is okay. Uh, You know, it's, it's an interesting thing, because I was in 96... I was part of the gay rights movement. And at that point, um, marriage, you know, we in the gay rights movement talked about marriage in cosmological, spiritual ways, focusing on the rights of the individual to define selfhood. At the same time, Christians were not defining, or in, in not, at least not in the cultural sphere, they, I didn't hear any or see any um, real presence of Christians defining what real biblical sexuality is. Instead, I heard Christians denouncing homosexuality. And so there was a lot of crosstalk. And I think the problem is that in order to defend biblical sexuality, indeed, you have to go to the Bible. And I think that Christians don't like to be thought of as 
um, ill-informed, anti-intellectual, poorly read bigots. And so, and I think that's what we think people think of us when we talk about the Bible in public. So I think we tried to talk about the Christian faith apart from the Bible. Indeed, I think we were ashamed of the gospel. And, because I'm on a roll now, um, I think if you're going to defend biblical sexuality, it, it even gets harder, because I don't think you can do it on the New Testament alone. I just don't. I, I mean, I've tried. I think you can defend, I think you can make a much stronger case for biblical feminism on the New Testament alone. I think if you want to defend biblical sexuality, you've got to go to Genesis 2. And I think you need to face what kind of genre Genesis 1 and 2 really, what it really is. And I think it's history. And I think without a literal, literal six-day creation, oh, so you're saying, oh, Rosaria, that's really going to make me seem smart, you know, among my friends. But I think without defending literal six-day creation, it's very, very hard uh, to understand uh, how Christian marriage could ever play out as a, a reflection of Christ in the church. So I, I think that we have been as bad as the world in some ways. You know, I think the world says... Uh, having sex is proof that you're a grown-up. I think the, the, the Christian church has said, has said that, has, has agreed, only said, get married first. And I think that has made singles in our church feel like second-class citizens or people, like, people who need to be fixed or fixed up. And I, and I think it's just a confusion of something, you know, there's actually no marriage in heaven, right? We're all going to be single in, he- in heaven, married to the, to the, to the Lamb. So I, I think we have to get our... In some ways, we, we, we have to figure out what it is we are defending and worry more about that than what we're defending against. But I think these conversations cannot take place in the public sphere if they can't take place at the dinner table. And I think they're never going to take place at the dinner table if we are not a biblically fluent people. You know, when I first first started teaching at a university, I I certainly, you know, met Christian students, and and they gave me, you know, appropriately so, a good amount of pushback. Um, but, But one of the things that really troubled me was a particular hermeneutic that I saw among Christians. And maybe it's just because I was really scary and didn't give people enough time to really finish their sentences. But it, and that could be. Um, but I saw too many people using the Bible in the way that I might use a punctuation mark, you know, to end a sentence rather than deepen it. You know, that's not how we're to use the Bible, right? The, the Bible is to be our guide for faith and life. And, and I, I think that if we were as fluent with the Bible as our postmodern friends were fluent with secular philosophy, I think we would see a totally different world. I really do. Are you going to pop back up again? Okay. I'm going to pop back over here and get another bottle of water. I know you've, you've mentioned a lot tonight about um, being better neighbors as Christians, and I think um, 
you know, I, I want to learn more about doing that. It's, it's kind of sad that we need some help. But um, I know. And I haven't read your book. I want to buy it tonight. I don't know if it goes into much detail in that. Um, I think you mentioned a book on the radio. And I wonder if, if Ken Smith is writing one. So if you could address that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ken Smith is amazing, and he, sh- and he should write a book. He's too busy. At this point, he has met, I think he told me, 800 neighbors in his new, you know, I mean, he's, you know, mid-80s, right? So, um, and he even shared with me the pamphlet that he, that he drafted um, to leave with these, you know, 800 neighbors. He ne- never leaves a pamphlet unless he knows your name. You know, it's not like a just kind of hit and run on these things. So, yeah, Ken, Ken and Floyd were amazing. Uh, they had a little labrie, you know, in their home, and, and, and people could go and talk about anything, and I saw people from all walks of life walking through those doors, and Ken and Floyd were also extremely good at giving people um, a sense of importance, you know. So there's what can an unbeliever bring to a conversation? Well, not, not necessarily a lot, but I love to bake bread, and so they would allow me to bake bread for our meetings, and, um, and, and anyone would walk in with any question, and it was a, it was a great example to me of, of what a vibrant Christian home should be. And we've, you know, we've tried, we've tried to model that, um, Hospitality. My husband Kent just finished a preaching ser- uh, ser- series on hospitality, and hospitality really means um, love of the stranger. And yet, in so many Christian circles, we have made the family an idol, and we have made stranger danger uh, a you know just I don't know a feature of that idolatry. And it's, it's no wonder, you know, people's, people's problems don't come by appointment only. They just don't. And so we need to find ways of making space for people to share what is really their deepest, darkest problem. And, you know, I spend, I spend a good bit of time talking to folks who struggle with all matter of sexual sin and when you ask someone who's struggling, who's deep in sexual sin, and you say, what is the worst part about this? You know, you might expect to hear something about the horrors of lust or the reliving of a problem. But at least what I hear is the fear that I will die alone. The fear that... Christian family and community is passing by me. And you know, the church is to be there from cradle to grave, right? We shouldn't, our houses are not so, should not be so bounded that our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are struggling don't know there's a safe place to fall. And I think we need to pray over our homes in that way. Is my home a safe place to fall? Well, I think it needs to be. I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, I am not a prophet, but it, it, I don't know how else we could look at what's happening now in the world and not see God's judgment upon it. Um, it you know, persecution may, may come, right? It does have a way of purifying things. Our houses had better be safe places to fall. Right? It's not about entertainment. Right, if there's, there's cat hair on the couch or in the food, just call it a spice. Go on. <laughs> That's what I do. 
Thank you, Dr. Dr. Butterfield. What is the status of Monday evening's appearance at USF, and how may we pray? Thank you. Um, well, pray that, thank you. I'm, so I'm speaking Monday at 7 o'clock at um, the University of South Florida. And any t- I'm also speaking later on this m- month at Duke. And um, when I speak at a secular uh, campus, I-, I am in unfriendly territory, right? But the other part of that is that I'm also entering the world that I helped make. So, um, obviously, I just, you know, I, 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 it, it's a powerful thing for me and uh, likely for everyone else. So pray that uh, hearts would be changed. Um, I often just pray that I will be allowed to speak, right? Because sometimes if there's enough of a protest, you just, you can't. Um, so I appreciate, uh, you know, we, these are spiritual battles, right, that we are facing, and we must, and we must respond to them using uh, spiritual means of grace and prayer is, is a, uh, a powerful and mighty fortress. And so I, I do cover your prayers for, um, for this, this ministry that I did not think I was signing up for. <laughs> I think that Pastor Jeff is here to say that we have something to say. So I'm going to take my water and sit down. <laughs> Well, let's give a hand to Dr. Butterfield. Thank you again for being with us. Uh, we hope to have the lecture and the question and answer time available on our church website early in the week, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. So uh, it's a resource there that we hope you can make use of again in your own uh, thoughts as you go back and reflect on some of the comments and questions made and perhaps something you could share uh, with a friend and neighbor who was not able to be here tonight. Um, we do have some light refreshments and also some books available out in our fellowship hall uh, just down this carpeted area and to your left. So we invite you to stay with us for a few more moments if you're able. And thank you again for being here. Good night.